Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. My guest this week is Brett Perlman. Brett is the CEO of the Center for Houston's Future and has spent 20 plus years in finance and policy roles in the energy industry, including four years as a Texas Public Utility Commissioner, overseeing the restructuring of the state's utility system. Brett, thank you for joining me. Uh, Nick, thanks for uh, having me. Great to have you on the show. Lots to talk about this week. I mentioned in the intro, you're from the Center for Houston's Future. So we're going to spend some time uh, talking about the future today. But I want to start out with the past, kind of set the stage for everybody. You've been in this industry, the energy industry in Texas uh, for a long time. How has the energy chain, this industry changed since you first got involved? And what would you say is still the same? Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, oil and gas, and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, uh, the power industry. And then I may talk a little bit about how those two things come together in the energy transition, things we're dealing with at the center right now. But I thought I might just, uh, for your readers uh, and listeners, it might be interesting just to hear a little bit uh, about the, you know, the history of the oil and gas industry and how it's changed. Um, it's really kind of an interesting history, and I can really talk about it in uh, and big chunks and just going to give you a quick overview. I mean, this industry is is literally a, a, over 100 years old. Uh, it started, you know, in the ni- in 1901 Spindletop. And, um, you know, Texas was the um, uh, really the first state to become a leader in, uh, in creating an oil industry and uh, was a leader for many, many years, for almost 40 years. And um, until the middle of the decade, when we saw the rise of OPEC, um, and really, the you know global demand uh, increase, and uh, Texas was a became a player um, in the global market as well, but um, became you know somewhat uh, subliminated to um, you know the role of OPEC in the in the 70s and 80s, and then of course we all rem- you know those of us who are old enough remember the um, you know the energy crisis when we um, uh, saw prices uh, go through the roof. So. Texas did quite well, you know, for a while, and then we saw, um, you know, we, we saw uh, prices fall in the um, in the mid '80s, um, uh, and uh, cause uh, you know the first oil, um, you know, uh, crisis, um, and then uh, in the um, uh, and so Texas became, you know, oil became kind of less of a um, less of a part of the Texas story as we started to diversify our economy. And then an interesting thing happened. You know, we um, um, we started to see the rise of natural gas as a, as a fuel in um, in the early 20th century, and that really spawned a revolution uh, in fracking and this idea of you know of uh, different ways of what people called unconventional production, and um, and what really happened in fracking. It started with natural gas, but it really became um, you know, the rebirth of the oil industry in Texas. And what we saw in the early part of this decade was just an explosion again in, in growth in the oil industry and, um, and really um, uh, growth in production. So uh, while we were producing around three and a half million barrels a day, I would say a hundred million, um, you know, uh, globally, uh, the fracking boom, uh, you know, really made Texas a leader again, 
Uh, we saw, you know, um, uh, national uh, national production go to 10 million barrels and Texas go to 5 million barrels. And so, you know, the re fracking really, re you know, resulted in the re rebirth of the oil and gas industry. Uh, and that was, uh, that was you know, re rejuvenated, uh, you know, places that had uh, over time um, deteriorated. The Permian Basin, for example, the Permian Basin became uh, the area around Midland has now, you know, uh, grew significantly. Um, and then all that was rocking along until um, we saw, uh, you know, um, once again, inevitably, um, you know, prices crash again in the, um, uh, in the middle part of this decade. Um, and, um, and really the industry go through its next cycle. And just as it was starting to come out, then COVID hit. And of course, now we've seen um, we've seen the, the the crash again. So, in the last decade, uh, you know, this brief tour through the oil industry through 100 years of history has really shown you that this is a very cyclical industry uh, that has gone through many many booms and bust cycles over the years. Um, and we're now at a sort of this pivot point uh, once again, where there's a question about where the oil industry goes next. And so that's. That's kind of a quick, you know, uh, brief history of a uh, brief run through of 100 years of history uh, for your listeners of where uh, the Texas energy industry has gone. And so we at the center are start trying to start to look forward about where, where does this industry go next and what are the implications of climate change, of decarbonization, of, you know, of resilience, uh, some of the things that we experienced uh, on the power side during February, during the blackout. What do some of these trends mean for for the state and for our energy sector? So, so those are some of the things we've been working on at the center, and uh, happy to talk more about what what we're seeing in, in in this area. Yeah, it's fascinating when you when you look at that history, right? You talk Spindletop, this huge new supply of oil came onto the market in, in Texas and really kind of changed the world, right? This really changed to the 21st century, um, and then you look out 100 years later, we find new supply. We, we knew it was there, but we we're able to get access to it in fracking and really change the world and really in a really significant way. How would you say Texas has changed uh, with the rise uh, of fracking? Well, it's interesting because what we've seen is we've seen that, um, well, first, you know, we diversified a lot in the 80s. So, you know, Texas used to be an oil state. As we went through uh, the crash in the 80s, we saw Texas diversify and oil become uh, you know, less of the Texas story, uh, but still an important part. So we've diversified, you know, um, since the 80s. Uh, oil and gas is still important. It's still a big uh, creator of jobs in the economy, uh, both direct jobs and indirect jobs, but not as important as it was perhaps in the 80s. But, but nevertheless, it still provides a big part of the, um, of the state's budget. It con has contributed, um, you know, about... Um, $13 billion of, um, of $128 billion budget, uh, you know, to our, um, uh, to our budget every year. It funds about 20% of our K through 12 education. And so uh, the oil and gas industry is still a big uh, contributor of GDP and jobs and, and, um, and a big contributor to our, you know, to our phys fiscal health, uh, to our state budget. So, uh, it's still a big part of our of the story of, of, of Texas, even though, and so the real, the real question is, is how is that going to change going forward? 
Absolutely. So, so we're talking about, you know, we're seeing some some change and evolution in the oil and gas industry with, with the rise of fracking and what that's done to oil prices and those sorts of things. At the same time, uh, we're seeing some change in, in the utility industry, this idea of, of energy transition. And I, I want to talk about some of your experiences in that industry as well. Maybe we'll bring these two together later on, as you talked about earlier. So back in the early 2000s, you played a role in restructuring Texas's utility industry. That, that's an industry that's been in, in the spotlight some in the past few months with, with the goings on with the blackouts in Texas. What did you learn in that experience uh, with utility industry? And you know, what should people know about uh, Texas utility in context of what's gone on over the past few months? Yeah. And so the, you know, now we're talking, uh, switching to the other side, we're moving from, um, you know, molecules to electrons, uh, which is the other part of the um, energy story in Texas and talking about the massive changes that have gone on over the last 30 years um, in the uh, in the power side of the business. And, you know, traditionally, the power side was a, you know, very sleepy regulated industry, you know, um, with stocks for widows and orphans. And then along came this company called Enron that had a different view of how the energy industry might be structured, that it might be deregulated, that part of this industry w w could be competitive. And, um, and those changes, you know, really swept the country. Texas was part of that as well. And um, I served on the Texas uh, Public Utility Commission in the um, early part of the, uh, the uh, 2000s when we were going through uh, this massive change in the way we, um, our industry was structured. And so what we did in Texas uh, is what uh, many other states have done, but we did it slightly more successfully, I think, as we move from a, um, uh, a regulated structure where, um, you know, the utility controlled everything from, you know, the power plants to some even, you know, some of the sources of production, uh, which back then were, you know, likely coal, uh, all the way to the, um, you know, to the uh, socket in your, um, in your living room. And we basically looked at that and said that there are parts of this that can be competitive, the generation business, the retail business and the only thing that couldn't be competitive uh, that needed to be regulated is because we only wanted one set of wires was the um, TND business. And so we went through a um, process of uh, deregulating and um, comp creating competitive markets uh, in Texas. Uh, other places had tried. California had done this unsuccessfully. Uh, but I think in Texas, we were able to, you know, to make this work. Um, and it created a huge... Uh, you know, explosion in investments. We saw uh, wind, uh, wind take off. Um, Texas has now surpassed uh, California. This surprises people when I tell them this, that Texas is the largest wind state um, in, the, in the country, um, uh, has well surpassed California with over 20 gigawatts of, of wind production. Um, and that's gonna probably continue. We'll talk a little bit about the blackout in a second. Um, but we've also um, seen lots of changes in, in, um, in our grid in terms of, um, uh, you know, in terms of new grid technologies. We've, certainly, we've seen retail companies come in. So we've lot, you know, the deregulation of the market really created a lot of opportunities for innovation. And I think this was really a positive story until, um, you know, until February when we had the blackout. So you know, this is, uh, this is kind of the question that everybody's asking now is a little bit about uh, where does this all go, uh, given the events of last February? Absolutely. So one of the big questions you had around the blackouts is, is, is the industry not regulated enough? Or is there too much 
uh, a wind or a renewable in, in energy in the system such that you know it's creating instability. What do you make of, of those arguments given your experience and background in the space? Yeah, I, I think you have to look at a couple different things here and kind of start to tease apart uh, exactly what happened. And so, um, and, and what we, I think at the end of the day, I think what we're going to find, and we're still looking at the causes of the um, blackout, but what we really had was a, um, a massive failure in our gas, gas production and generation, gas generation system. And um, as I mentioned, when we restructured the electric market, we saw this inflow of not only of renewables, but of new uh, combined cycle natural gas plants, which have really become uh, the backbone over the last uh, 20 or 25 years of our, of our power system. And um, what we found is we lost about um, 40, uh, a little over 40% of, um, of that gas generation um, around, you know, during uh, President's Day. Uh, this blackout really uh, expand, stretched from, uh, you know, from the Valentine's Day, uh, early in the morning on that Sunday through President's Day and then through the uh, following Wednesday or Thursday. And um, so very long time for the power to be out, for people to be suffering. Uh, there were a number of um, uh, deaths related to this, so a very serious situation. Uh, I think what we're learning from that is that um, these systems had not been sufficiently winterized. And whether, you know, it doesn't really matter what kind of um, regulatory framework you have when you lose 40% of your generation mix, it's not going to be, a, uh, it's going to be very difficult to sustain your system. And that's, I think, the lesson that we'll learn from this, that um, we need to have, um, as we start to experience more and more of these um, extreme weather events, and you can call it climate change, you can call it whatever you want, um, but we need to uh, invest more in making sure our infrastructure is resilient uh, to these sorts of changes. So I think that's the big lesson from this. Um, I think you heard a little bit about renewables um, and you know, was it the fact that the wind stopped blowing uh, that caused all this? And I think, I think everybody, uh, you know, across the board has pretty much concluded that that was not a major cause of the problem. Uh, ERCOT during the winter uh, does not really rely very much on, um, on wind energy, uh, simply because the wind doesn't blow very strong uh, during the winter. And therefore, um, uh, wind is not a, a big factor, was not a big factor in the, um, uh, in the, in the blackout that we had in February. So, um, we're going to see where this heads, but I think the big uh, the big issue will be: can we address the um, reliability issues that have been uncovered, particularly in extreme uh, weather events? Usually, Texas has extreme weather during the summer, very hot in Texas, obviously during the summer. But now we're starting to experience, you know, that it can get very cold in Texas uh, during the during the winter as well, and so that's an issue that we're going to have to address. All right, so, so that that brings us kind of around to the future of, of energy in Texas, the, the future of the grid. We're on the topic of, of the grid right now. How do you see things, the, the grid being different 10 years into the future? Obviously, probably going to winterize more, but but as we move into energy transition and yeah. those sorts of things. Well, I, I think one of the things that we're, you know, so I think one of the, th so we're starting to see these big trends. 
uh, on both sides of the industry. And, they, and this is where they the story starts to come together. And it's really, I think, starting to come together around this idea of um, the need to decarbonize uh, and um, our energy sector. And so uh, we're going to see these big shifts that I've been talking about, both on the oil and gas side and on the power side, uh, start to converge. Um, we're going to see more electrification uh, because one of the strategies for addressing climate change is to move uh, basically from uh, from oil and gas uh, to renewables and to um, lower carbon sources of energy. Now, uh, some of those lower carbon sources of energy might be natural gas plants, for example, with carbon capture. And so that may be a technology that allows you to, um, uh, you know, to uh, still use uh, some of the um, uh, traditional fossil fuel infra infrastructure that we've built in Texas. Or you might see new sources of energy, and we'll talk about this, I suppose, in a few minutes, uh, like hydrogen come to the fore. Um, but I think what you're going to start to see is this convergence um, around, uh, around decarbonization. And the challenge for the state is, can we both uh, decarbonize and maintain reliability? So we're going to have to build a lot more um, you know, renewables, whether it's wind or solar or energy storage as well as start to capture some of the carbon from our existing um, gas plants in order to meet you know, our goals, uh, you know, uh, if we're gonna decarbonize our grid, if that's where we're headed. And so I think that's where we're headed over the next 10 years. Um, that doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that the oil and gas industry is going away. Um, in fact, what you may see is um, uh, a very robust sector, uh, oil and gas sector in Texas um, oil and gas demand globally is still going to, you know, be be quite robust for the next, you know, 20 to 30 years. If you look at any of the uh, forecasts by the um, uh, federal government or by the um, uh, International Energy Agency, and so Texas as a low cost state will probably be providing, you know, a lot of that, um, you know, that supply. And so I think, you know, in some ways, uh, while the story changes. It's just the next chapter uh, in the in the energy story that I've been been describing. But again, we have to um, uh, the energy industry is going to go through this transition, and we need to start uh, adapting uh, to these changes. Yeah, Brett. One of the things you mentioned was this idea that that some of the existing infrastructure in place from from you know, the oil and gas industry uh, maybe puts Texas in a position where they can they can uh, or, or some of these energy businesses in a position where they can move somewhat smoothly over to some of these these new industries. Can can you talk about about that infrastructure and and how that would work? Yeah. So so we at the Center for Houston's Future have been looking at this uh, issue of how do we make uh, this transition, you know. Um, from a fossil fuel-based economy to a um, low-carbon economy, and what's the role of, um, of the oil and gas industry in, um, you know, in this energy transition? And like I've been describing when we started this conversation, the idea of, um, of an energy transition is not a new one. The energy industry has been transitioning for you know, well over 120 years now, and so this is just the next iteration uh, in what we've been talking about today, this, this long history of, of transition through the energy industry. Um, and I think one of the opportunities that we have in Texas uh, to facilitate this transition is the existing asset base that we have. We're, we're really um, asset rich in a lot of different ways. And those are both physical assets uh, in terms of um, uh, some of the um, 
storage capabilities we have in terms of the geologic formations that we have, which can perhaps store CO2. Uh, used to uh, be places where that stored oil. Now that can perhaps um, you can put some of the CO2 back in in terms of geological storage. Right, it's literally uh, injecting it into the ground, just just for folks, you know. So you have a, you know a, a reservoir that maybe you would have put oil in. Now you're going to pump uh, CO2 into that reservoir. Is yeah, that you would have taken the as opposed to taking things out of it. You're not going to be putting things, but you're going to be putting taking oil out of it. You now you're going to be putting CO2 back in into it. That that is uh, known in the industry as um, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. We're really talking about the storage piece. It can be used utilization too. It can be used to uh, basically recover. For more oil as well. That's called advanced oil recovery. So we'll we'll see uh, carbon dioxide used in lots of these applications. Um, you know, uh, and, and we really have those assets in Texas, both the physical assets, uh, the natural assets, and then the uh, pipeline and and um, and and man-made assets as well uh, to to start to facilitate that energy transition. Yeah, another area that, that I know you've written about at the center and, and folks are have gotten a lot of attention over the past year is hydrogen technology. Fuel cells has been an area that has, has gotten some particular interest. Where does the hydrogen opportunity lie in Texas? Well, this is this is one of the more interesting things that I think we were, uh, our research uncovered is that um, hydrogen today is used primarily as a feedstock. It's used in the um, and the refining process for oil and gas and for petrochemicals, but uh, hydrogen and it produces a lot of CO2. Um, when you use uh, so the way you produce hydrogen today is through a process called steam methane reforming, uh, and you produce it from natural gas. And when you do that, you create um, basically hydrogen and and um, and CO2. Um, but what we have found is if you can marry that with these carbon capture technologies and capture the CO2, you can create basically a low carbon uh, intense product that some people call blue hydrogen. And this hydrogen can not only be used as a feedstock, but can be used as a fuel in lots of different applications. And so you can envision, um, and this technology is not, you know, uh, really, um, it exists today. Um, uh, hydrogen buses, hydrogen trucks, hydrogen uh, ships, uh, hydrogen boats, <clears throat> and even people are thinking about a hydrogen-powered aircraft. These are all uh, transportation technologies that could be facilitated with using um, blue hydrogen and then maybe in the future what people call green hydrogen, which would use some of the um, renewables that we have through a process called electrolysis, effectively turning water into hydrogen and oxygen. Um, and that green hydrogen, which would be, you know, zero carbon is, you know, the, perhaps the fuel of the future, the, um, uh, literally would be the thing that would be transformational. So the real question is, is how do we create this new industry, take the existing hydrogen that we're using as the feedstock and start to use it as a fuel in these different applications. And we at the center have been studying this, a uh, number of companies, Obviously, uh, some of the ones that you guys follow at, at Motley Fool, like uh, Plug Power and Ballard, have been, you know, have gone through many iterations. This is not a new idea. These companies, some of these companies, have been around for uh, quite a few years and have been, you know, their business plans have now gone through many iterations and are started starting to be rejuvenated by this idea of using hydrogen as a 
uh, low carbon energy source of the future. And so I think that's what we see as an opportunity. And we really see uh, Houston as the um, one place where we can start to create these clean energy infrastructure hubs uh, in the short run. And we really view that as kind of this, as we've been talking about this afternoon, as the next iteration of what we started to discuss way back when, you know, when we started the discussion at Spindletop. So, you know, some people have called, um, you know, this, um, this idea of investing in hydrogen, the next Spindletop. And I don't know if that's true or not, but we'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll certainly be exploring that at the center. And I know many of your, um, your listeners and investors will be exploring that uh, in terms of the companies that they look to invest in over the next uh, five to 10 years. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, to kind of follow that up, Brett, you know, when we think about, you know, you know, Houston and Texas being an important state and some of this existing infrastructure, do you see, you know, companies we think of as traditional oil and gas companies, you know, your Exxons and Chevrons of the world being meaningful players in this industry, or is it more of those kind of pure play, you know, pure uh, companies like, like, you know, the, 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 the fuel cell players you mentioned? Yeah. One of the interesting things about energy is scale is so important. And so I think, you know, the, um, everybody has something to contribute to, the, to, to, the, um, to this new uh, energy landscape that we're talking about today. Um, and it's just a question of, of where they contribute. And so I think the, the, um, uh, the large integrated oil companies uh, bring that scale to the, um, to the table and have something to contribute. Uh, the smaller startup companies, uh, private equity companies, uh, can, can contribute ideas and new technology. Uh, there's really room for everybody to play. Who the winner, ultimate winners and losers are, I think it's, it's really too soon to tell. Um, so you're starting to see companies, uh, you know, uh, differentiate their strategies. Certainly the large companies have. And, um, and, and you're starting to see how that's starting to play out um, in terms of the market's reaction to them. So uh, it's hard to say where this is going to end up. I think there is room for everybody in uh, you know, creating kind of a very interesting uh, new energy landscape. And we think that Houston in particular has a role to play as this new energy, low carbon energy hub. And that's the, the, those are the thing, things that we're working on at the Center for Houston's Future. Awesome. Uh, maybe, so, so we talked about how, how big this opportunity is, maybe we want to follow up. Um, what, are, what do you think are the biggest barriers to achieving that, this vision? Like, what, what do you think are the biggest obstacles uh, um, to, to, to forming this, this, uh, this future for Houston and, and for the energy industry more broadly? Yeah, I, I think there are two. One is um, a soft one, and then one is uh, more uh, tangible. The first one is vision. Um, you know, I think uh, people are, um, you know, change is hard, and um, creating a common vision that uh, where people can understand that we're not saying, um, it, you know, our existing energy is going away overnight, uh, but they can buy into this new vision, and they can see um, that there, you know, these opportunities to be green are not only about, uh, reducing carbon intensity, but they're about making money. Um, you know, that's, that's, that, that needs, that story needs to be told. And so that's the soft one, the vision one. And then I think the, um, the more tangible one is really about the set of, um, policies that need to be out there to support, um, you know, these markets as they, as they, um, start to grow. And each of these newer technologies and energy, as I mentioned, Scale is important. Time to market is important, and um, and these all have had traditionally have had you know 
uh, policy support and a policy framework that makes it work. That's what we found, you know, in Texas when we restructured the market. And we don't have a, I think we're starting to develop in the U.S. and but still on the state level there are big gaps. Uh, a policy framework that supports, uh, you know, supports this kind of industry. And so our policymakers in Austin, I think, uh, need to understand what the vision is and need to understand that this is something that will create, you know, enormous amount of wealth for the state and, um, you know, for our citizens uh, going forward. And this is something they need to get behind. And I think if they can, if they can grasp that vision and turn that vision into, um, you know, into a policy reality, I think Texas will become, you know, uh, the new low carbon energy capital of the world. Right. So, so yeah, f- follow up question on that. Is, is the energy transition dependent on, on, you know, government involvement just because of the scale of this problem? We, we've seen the kind of new Biden infrastructure plan. You talked about the, the role of states. You, you, yeah. you view the role of government as being key or, or how, how do you view the oh, role think, of the government think, playing? I think the issue is, is it really comes down to, um, you know, economics 101. Um, uh, CO2, uh, which we're talking about, is an externality. And if we don't put a price on it, if we don't have policies that internalize the cost of CO2, uh, then, then you know, then people are going to not treat it, and they're not going to price it properly. So, um, what we really need to do at the end of the day is we need to internalize uh, this externality. And if we can, however, we do that through policy, through a carbon price. You know, there are uh, numerous ways of doing that. Um, but simply, we need to make it. At the end of the day, it's not so much about policy; it's about making markets work. If we can, um, if we can find ways to make. Um, internalize the cost of pollution of CO2 as a pollutant, then we can make markets do the rest of the job. And so uh, until we can do that, we have to find second best solutions. And that's where the role of policy comes in. But, you know, just like we did in the competitive electric market, if we can compete, create policy frameworks that where competition can work, then markets will take over. And so I think there is a role for government in the short term to play here, but in the long term, what you really want to do is create markets around this stuff. Brett, thank you so much for spending this last half hour with us. I just got one last question for you before you let you go. If you look out to the future of energy, what's the biggest question for you right now, the biggest uncertainty as you look out into the future? Well, I wish my, uh, Nick, I wish I could tell you my crystal ball is a little clearer. Uh, I think the next 10 years are really going to make, a, you know, they're going to tell the tale on whether we're successful uh, in the energy transition because, um, if you read any of the, um, you know, the literature around this, you'll know that really we have 10 years to solve this problem. And so um, uh, the biggest question for me is, can we move fast enough to start addressing uh, climate change in a meaningful way uh, to, to make a dent in, um, in, in our CO2 emissions? Uh, so to me, that's the big question we have to answer. How do we, how do we start moving faster to start uh, creating this energy future uh, sooner as opposed to later. Well, well thank you so much for, for spending this time with us, Brad. If folks want to f- keep track of what you're doing or what the, or some information that the center is is putting out, where can they go do that? Yeah, so our website is uh, futurehouston.org. Or uh, the, you know they can reach out to me. Uh, my contact information is on our website. Thank you so much. Uh, As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Annie Franks for her help with the show. For Brett Perlman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.